Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the 89th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. It's Friday, ready for the weekend. Been a good long week, got some March madness ahead of us, I'm ready. Yeah, yeah, hopefully it'll be a a good weekend here. Hopefully uh, we get some sunshine and the rain stops. Been a little rainy here the past couple days. It has, a little dreary. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, no, looking forward to to watching some basketball and and having a good weekend. So, as always, we will uh, take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on March 18th, and this data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 0.35% for the month of March and up 4.24% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 4.21% for the month and up 7.37% for the year. The NASDAQ down 3.48% for March and up 1.77% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is uh, virtually flat for the month of March and up 14.88% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF, X United States, is up 0.08% for the month and up 4.89% for the year. Three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.01%, a whopping 0.01%. Watch out. Uh, The two-year Treasury yield currently sitting at 0.16%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 1.69%, which is the highest it's been in a while. Yep. So the Treasury, 10-year Treasury yield continues to climb. Um, Big news and headlines, current events from the past week. I think the biggest thing, Matt, was the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan that became law on March 11th. And this relief legislation is intended to speed up the economic recovery and the distribution of vaccines across the country. Uh, the new round of stimulus checks um, to working and middle class Americans have garnered most of the headlines. And we're going to talk about this here in a little bit with some more detail. Excellent. Um, Next, the government released inflation data last week, also known as the CPI, which is the Consumer Price Index. The inflation rate over the past 12 months moved up in February to 1.7% from 1.4% the prior month. And a majority of these gains came from higher gasoline prices, which nudged inflation closer to levels seen before COVID hit. And many economists are now predicting that inflation could match or exceed pre-pandemic pace of 2.3% by the middle of the year as the U.S. recovery gains momentum. Uh, and we'll talk about inflation here in a little bit. Yep. Um, next, this is an interesting stat. The U.S. screened 1.357 million airport passengers on Friday, March 12th, which was the highest number since March 15th of 2020. That's a big statistic to throw out there. Big statistic. Yeah. I think it shows that people are getting more and more comfortable with traveling. 
You know, this um, is before the stimulus money, the recent stimulus money hit. You know, not only A, they feel comfortable traveling, but they're willing to spend money to do it. Right. I think it's a very good statistic. I think it is too. And the last piece of information that just happened uh, earlier this week, Matt, is that the Treasury Department and IRS recently announced that the federal income tax filing due date for individuals for the 2020 tax year has been extended to May 17th of 2021. So this means that the payment of 2020 tax and 2020 IRA and HSA contributions are not due until May 17th. Now. I think that's wonderful. And I think it's prudent getting everything going on. Yeah, I think it is too. So it just gives people a little bit of a leeway uh, to get their taxes in on time. So um, don't freak out if you haven't done anything with it yet. You still have uh, a little less than two months from from today on Friday the 17th or excuse me the 19th of march to get those in and filed it's wonderful um so moving on to tweets articles and research from the past week that caught our eyes i saw a quote from robert schiller matt and he said that after a stock market decline people may perceive more risk than before when in fact the decline may have taken some of the risk out of the market bingo and I think, you know, some people have a misconception surrounding, you know, risk in general and that if markets are down, they think, you know, there's more risk at that point in time. And, you know, in my opinion, that's not the definition of risk. To me, the definition of risk is permanent loss of capital. And I think it's been cl- pretty clear in the U.S. over or since the market's inception that that's never happened never happened before um you know what are your what are your thoughts on this i think people get volatility confused with risk i think they do too and they're two different animals like you just insinuated which i agree with your statement and when we talk about volatility we're talking about the the speed of the gyrations up and down in the markets right absolutely and this is a very important point and i think that listeners need to take note of this and i'm glad you started with it so again at the end of the day Listeners confuse volatility with risk, and they're two different animals. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, the next thing I had was a tweet by Ryan Dietrich, and this was on March 9th. And he posted a chart of um, returns in the NASDAQ tech heavy index, um, you know, after it's experienced fast 10% corrections because the NASDAQ did correct 10% from its all-time high over the past couple of weeks. Which I will throw out in my editorial slant that I think it's a healthy thing. Yeah, I think it is too. Yeah, because just throw it out there. Again, you know, people think back to the tech bubble in the early 2000s and, you know, there were no breathers at that point. It was the market was up every single day, every week, every month. I'm going to throw this out there. This might be me being a little too forward looking, but in three or four months, if the NASDAQ hits a 52-week high, I don't want to hear anybody complain they didn't have their opportunity to buy. <laughs> true. It's right, true. Just throwing it out there. So he tweeted, what happens after fast 10% corrections for the NASDAQ? Extremely strong returns are quite common, meaning this 10% correction could end up being a nice buying opportunity for those willing to make the uncomfortable trade. Boom. And after quick uh, 10% corrections from the NAS- for the NASDAQ, Matt, the average 12-month forward return was just under 30% on average. And these data sets go back all the way. The, the earliest I see is one is 1986, yeah, 80, 80, 
I mean, these data sets go back multiple decades. Right. And the only time it was negative looking out 12 months was, you know, in the early 2000s with the tech bubble, yep. the tech crash. Yep. Um, so, again, past performance, not indicative of future returns. But, you know, this is, you know, another stat that, you know, says eh, the run might not be over in growth stocks and in the NASDAQ. Absolutely. So as I said earlier, I just wanted to give everyone a brief update on the latest stimulus bill that was passed recently and just give everyone the need to knows, so to speak. I think that'd be great, Mark. So, you know, stimulus checks are already being deposited into Americans' bank accounts. And if it hasn't happened, uh, expect that to happen over the next week or so. The latest payments are going to be 1400 per household member, including adults, children, and adult dependents, such as college students and elder, or el, elderly relatives. Adult dependents were eligible for um, or ineligible for prior rounds of payments. So, for example, a married couple with two children will receive up to $5,600, which is a pretty big deal. Big deal. Um, the IRS is going to be sending the payments using the direct deposit information it has on file and will try to provide as many people as possible with these faster electronic payments. If it doesn't have that information, it will send paper checks or debit cards, which obviously is going to take longer to arrive. Um, so for this round, individuals with adjusted gross income up to 75000 and married couples with AGI up to 150000 will get the full payments. But individuals with AGI of 80000 and married couples with AGI of 160000 will get nothing. So the phase-out so phase is pretty small. Real small. Yeah, it's a $10,000 window there. For the married couples, yeah. Five right. for single. Right. Um, so the government's going to use the information it has on file from your 2020 tax return if that has been processed. But if that has not been processed, it will use the information from the 2019 tax return if your 2020 return has not been processed. And again, if people <clears throat> haven't processed their 2020 tax returns and, you know, the IRS is going off of 2019 income, then when they go and do their 2020 taxes, they should in the following year receive a credit if they're due more stimulus money at some point in time. Oh, so it's not like, that. you know, if, if you're not eligible in 2019, but your income is eligible in 2020, then you should be entitled to a rebate credit there. That's inter I know that. That's interesting. So if people are curious about that, I would encourage them to talk to their accountants to make sure that that's, you know, something that, you know, you know, you want to get, obviously, you know, if you're eligible for it. That's awesome. So don't want to leave uh, free money on free the table money on the table. That's all right. Um, OK, I'll turn it over to you. All right, Mark, I got three tidbits for listeners this week. First of all, I want to start with kind of a an update on inflation in regards to the markets. Now, before I dive into it, the reason I think this is fruitful is over the past roughly four, six weeks, we've seen a short term spike in let's say the 10 year treasury, and it spooked Wall Street a little bit. Okay, is that a good way of paraphrasing it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't understand why, but Me that's, neither. That's, Me a, neither. that's what the media is saying. Well, they're trying to label it some way or another. And that's what they're trying to attach to the reason. Mm -hmm. And I, my skepticism along with yours is extremely high. Okay. So with that being said, um, 
I found this piece of research from Bespoke Investment Research on March 12th, okay? Now, I want to throw out there that by May, um, economists are temporarily expecting the rise in the Consumer Price Index, CPI, which is what you referenced a little bit ago, to temporarily peak to 3 to 4% range from its existing 1% to 2% range before falling back going into the summer. The reason? All this stimulus money that you were just talking about, okay? Statistically speaking, a lot of the uh, consumers receiving this money are going to do what with it, Mark? Spend it. They're going to spend it, baby. And as that starts going through the economy, it's temporarily going to heat up some prices, okay? So according to this research from Bespoke on March 12th, for the returns of the S&P 500 index going back to 1948 to 2021, it's showing periods of which when inflation, judged by the consumer price index that the government re, uh, releases, when it reaches a rate between 3 to 4%, how does the market react to that? Okay. In forward-looking three months out on average, it's up about 2.5%. Looking out six months on average, it's up about 4.8%. Looking 12 months out or one year, 10.2%. And on the one-year basis, it's positive 74% of the time. So, you know, talking about how the media keeps throwing this out there, that it's doom and gloom with interest rates going up, tell me how. That means corporate profits are going up. They're selling more goods. I'm seeing the number of job posts and on Deed at practically an all-time high. Companies are not going to hire somebody to sit them in the corner and do nothing. Mm -hmm. So this narrative that the media, financial media, is putting out there doesn't correlate with what I see. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and the first point I'll make is, uh, again, I want to come back to this and see you know, what inflation temporarily actually does rise to because, you know, all these economists put their predictions out there and usually none of them are right, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, and if we take gasoline out of this, because gasoline itself yes. has its own reasons for spiking, not necessarily correlated to demand. And remember, not too long ago, uh, you know, oil was negative. For, negative. For, for a while. Negative. And so, you know, I don't want to get too much in the weeds into it for the listeners, but, you know, we had a two week shutdown in Texas due to extreme weather and the um, the domino effect of what that caused in gasoline prices is a big reason you've seen the jump, not necessarily a, a sudden spike in demand. Mm -hmm. Now, is demand up? Yes. Not enough to equal this rate of increase you've seen. Right. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. And I just, you know, I, I'm just not in the camp that higher interest rates are bad for stocks. I just... Okay. Now that you say that, I'm going to put some proof behind it. Okay. All right. So my next thing for listeners is recently the NASDAQ 100, which you were talking about earlier, it tends to be a little bit more of a tech heavy index, mm -hmm. has underperformed in general due to, quote unquote, concerns of rising bond yields. And Mark, does this spell trouble? Well, let's put some data behind it. So Bespoke uh, issued some raw research on March 12th. Previous instances where we saw a similar move in bond yield spikes in recent history are November of 1990, September of 1999, and September of 2006. 
2006 carried the lowest 12-month return after this occurred. And you want to know what it was? 20%. (laughs) The other two data sets, 12 months later, NASDAQ 100, over 40%. My takeaway, the data set is small, but it is not a time to dump growth stocks for deep value names, in my personal opinion. Yeah, and I think it's just one of those things that, you know, a 10% pullback from all-time highs is extremely normal for any index or any stock, in my opinion. And it feels worse than it is because it's been a while, again, since this has happened. And there's nothing wrong with, in my opinion, sideways consolidation for a while. Um, We have been in a pretty healthy bull market here over the past year. I think that the new bull market is turned one year old this week or whatever people are saying about it. But, you know, it's in my opinion, I think, you know, it's tough. (laughs) I don't want to give a recommendation, but in my opinion, I'll just say it. I, you know, personally think Amazon, for example, is more innovative than ExxonMobil. And just with my view on the future and where this country is going, I think that could be said for a lot of different companies. Yeah, and, and we're not and sitting there saying that Amazon's the, right for you or right. Exxon's not right for you. And but for me, case, I think it's right for me. There you go. Right? It's okay saying And that. just with my view on where I think this country and this economy is going and this digital transformation that we're going to be going through over the next decade – in my opinion, if people are patient, then, you know, I don't see the innovation coming from these, quote unquote, value beaten down areas of the market. All right. I'm going to prove this point. You are doing perfect. It's so, a role reversal. This I guess, is here. great. I love this. So listeners ready for my third item for the day? I wanted to throw out there for you a tweet by Austin Allred on March 3rd. Um, Austin founded an online coding school marked called Lam- Lambda. I don't want to mess this up. But um, this gentleman posted an incredible moment from a 60 Minutes episode on about Amazon in 1999. Okay. And it shows the 60 Minutes anchor mark in the trading floor of Jeffries, which is a brokerage firm, and it has a stock analyst at Jeffries who's covering Amazon in 1999. So it shows this trading floor. It shows this 60 Minutes interviewer, and he's like, so what's this phenomenon about you know, Amazon? How can it be you know, the stock doing so well? And the analyst is like, well, it's worth 20% more than Sears Roebuck. And he's like, why do you think that is? And the analyst is like, well, investors are perceptive that this company has better growth prospects than Sears Roebuck. And then the punchline comes. The anchor, literally, Mark, starts laughing and giggling like a schoolgirl and says, a couple of geeks who sketched out some software, ha, 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 could really destroy Sears Roebuck, end quote. <laughs> and this was in 1999. 
Well, yeah, well, it kind of relates to where we are today, I think. You have people out there that are, you know, saying that all of these technology and especially software names are extremely overvalued. But in my opinion, you know, look back what happened with the Amazons and Apples of the world. Yeah. And I think you got to ask the question just as he attempted to ask the question, but he didn't take the answer seriously, which is why are some of these companies getting a higher valuation than the tried and true name that was the leader for the last decade? And it's because unless those tried and true leaders continue to innovate and grow, someone else is going to eat your lunch. Right. And that's going to continue to happen. And I fully expect that over the next decade or the next 20 years, there's going to be companies that come in and they they take over, you know, the big tech of the world. It's just how it works, right? Who, yeah, who thought back in the early 2000s that GE was going to be where it was today? IBM. IBM. They were top of tech. Intel. Top of tech. They get taken over. They can't innovate. Your competitors aren't going to knock on your door and say, hey, if you don't work a little bit harder, or innovate a little bit quicker, I'm going to take all your clients. Right. It doesn't work that way. So <laughs> that was good. Uh, that was good. <laughs> so with that being said, you know, I saw that snippet and it really spoke to me, given I think what's going on in the market, at least short term. And your comments with just using the generalization analogy between like an Exxon going forward, innovation wise and Amazon, mm -hmm. that seems to make a little more, I think, sense when you kind of put it in this context between Amazon and Sears. And think about that. 1999, they thought Sears was going to be the king for the next several decades. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Yeah, because people don't <clears throat> a lot of people. It's hard for them to look past over the next decade or the next two decades that's right my friend they're just focused on on what's here and now that's right so so i'll send it back to you yeah that's interesting um financial planning topic of the week it'll be a pretty quick one matt but um again just with interest rates still you know around you know historically uh low rates you know the question is always coming up of you know should i refinance my mortgage yes sir and this was just triggered by a blog post written by Peter Lazaroff on his blog titled, um, Should You Refinance Your Mortgage? Okay. So I think people <clears throat> automatically, without doing the math, think that it is always in your best interest to refinance your mortgage. And I don't necessarily agree with that. Okay. okay. So he starts off by saying, do the math to determine if a mortgage refinance is worth the cost. Again, refinancing comes with costs, cost of appraisal, loan origination fees, recording fees, taxes, so on and so forth. Some lenders require you to pay the fees up front while others bake them into the loan in the form of a higher loan balance or higher interest rate. So people need to keep that in the back of their head. Refinancing is not free. No. Right. So start. So he comes up with like a formula to see if it makes sense, an easy way back of the napkin uh, calculation to see if it makes sense for you, right? Okay. So start by subtracting your expected monthly payment from what you currently pay, which is what you would save per month. Then add the total cost of the fees, and then finally divide that total by the monthly savings. 
So the results tell you where you'll break even or how many months you need to stay in the home to make up the cost of refinancing, right? Mm -hmm. So if, for example, your break even number is 18, it's going to take you 18 months before you've recouped your refinancing costs. And then, you know, once you pass that 18 month period, it made financial it, sense. Yeah, for you you're going to start it. saving money. So just as an example, let's say, you know, someone's current mortgage payment is $2,000 a month. Okay. And their expected payment with the refinance is 1500 bucks a month. So that's a $500 per month savings. In the initial look, one would think this is a slam dunk. Right. So, but then you got to add in the closing costs, right? And the, the refinancing fees, right? So the average closing cost uh, to refinance is about 4,300 in the US right now. Okay. So if you take that 4,345 plus the $500 saving per month, um, you get $4,845, divide that by the monthly savings, and you get 9.7 months. I would say that's a pretty good deal. I think it's a good deal. Yeah. Right. So it'll take you almost 10 months to recoup your costs. And after that point, you're going to be saving It was a good financial money. decision. Right. But if you take that same scenario with $12,000 in closing costs for refinance, it'll take you 25 months to recoup that. Which may or may not be a smart decision. Right. So I think you have to sit there and say, hey, how much longer am I going to be in my home? And if you're one that's like, yeah, I'm going to raise my family here, I'm going to be here for the next 20 years, then sure, that probably makes sense. Sure. But I know that we've talked about this before. In my opinion, I think you need to recoup your costs in two years or less as a general rule of thumb if you want to go and refinance your home. Um, so I just think that this is a quick, easy calculation that a lot of people can do because, you know, we've been getting it a lot. Yep. Um, so I think start with this calculation. You also have to take into account, you know, how long you're going to be in the house. You know, if you're going to be in the house for less than two years, most Probably of the time make it doesn't make all. sense to refinance. Yeah. Um, but, you know, do this calculation and, and see for yourself if, if, if something that, that does make sense. I think that's great to point out. Anything to add there? No, sir. Um, okay. So moving on, we had one question, uh, from a listener this week, and this was from Mark and he says, can you explain the Buffett indicator and your thoughts about it in the current market? Valuations right now seem high. Um, I can take this one. Okay. Go ahead. I get fired up about this one. Okay. Yeah. I have, so I'll probably have some things to add. So go ahead. Okay. So, um, um, in the market right now, listeners, there are um, a lot of talking heads on financial media referencing various indicators or statistics that in the past were the smoking gun for the top of a market. Okay. The one that's making its rotation a little heavier than others is something called the Buffett indicator. Okay. So the Buffett indicator is a ratio of total U.S. stock market valuation versus GDP. Okay, and when this metric of the so stock you say just so just to clarify, you take the total value of the U.S. stock market, divide it by the current quarter GDP annualized, mm -hmm. and the the higher the ratio, the more overvalued. The insinuation is that yes, it's more overvalued. Okay, okay. So um, there is a huge, huge piece of data that is missing from this calculation. And you want to know what it is? Interest rates. Mm -hmm. So 
it's difficult to, and it's trying to provide an analogy to the tech bubble of 2000. And on this podcast, you and I, on many separate occasions, have talked about in 2000, some of the key differences to today. And one of those key differences, listeners, was interest rates. And very often on this podcast, Mark has referenced that the 10-year treasury yield was between 6 to 7%. And as you heard Mark start off the beginning of the podcast, he said it's about 1.69% right now. So people are trying to sit there and say, well, because of the Buffett indicator, and he was right at the tech bubble of 2000, it must mean the market's overvalued now, now that the indicator has surpassed that ratio. But you know what? I think if you actually ran the math and you were to provide a correlation to where interest rates were between 6 and 7% in the 10-year to sub 2% now, it would completely, completely destroy the narrative. Mm -hmm. And that's what gets me fired up about this is because it's not apples to apples because the amount of money that is out there right now on top of the fact of a low interest rate environment negates this narrative. So before I get too fired up, I'm going to send it to you. Yeah, no, I think that that's great. And I think the other piece of this, too, is that when people see, quote unquote, indicators like this, they tend to hang their hat on one single indicator. And I think that's almost malpractice to do that. I think that it's one tool in your toolkit when you're trying to take an objective view on the markets. But I think it's a really dangerous proposition to just say, oh, because the Buffett indicator is at you know all-time highs, it's screaming that the market's overvalued, that means that the market has to drop 80%. I think that's a very dangerous proposition. And what I would rather people do is take a weight of the evidence approach. Yeah. Right? I think... Um, you know, I don't think it's any secret that me and you are bullish right now. But, you know, if, you know, small caps started to roll over, for example, um, if micro caps started to roll over, for example, if we see a deterioration of stocks making new 52 week highs and all time highs that OK, that could that could give me a little cause for concern or a little caution if we see, um, you know, uh, consumer staples outperforming the S&P 500 index. That would give me a little cause for concern. But as of today, we're not we're not seeing that. Right. Mm-mm. And, you know, there's we, we talk every week on on, you know, other metrics that we look at that have us in the bullish camp right now. So I don't want people to think that we're you know, always going to be this optimistic on the stock market, but just taking the weight of the evidence from what we're seeing right now, in our opinions, the weight favors the bulls rather than the bears. Perfectly said, Mark. Um, And I don't think anyone looking at this, this Buffett indicator would disagree that, you know, it's at all time highs. So if you're looking at this and you believe that this is an accurate valuation metric, then yeah, then you can say that you think the market's overvalued. But again, you can't just hang your hat on one thing. No. And, you know, I'm going to you know point something out about Buffett that's not necessarily a popular view. And he's been making some poor decisions the last couple of years. OK, no one wants to talk about it. So I will. So let's look at last 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 year, February and March. He bought nothing, virtually speaking. 
He sold the airlines at the low. You know, um, he's overweight at Wells Fargo. Um, he bought precision cash parts at the high. I can keep going. And if I put down all of his decisions the last five years on paper, they wouldn't look that hot. Mm-hmm. He's had a couple good ones. He's overweighted Apple drastically in 14, 15, and 16. Which I'm interested to see what the uh, valuation on Apple was when he bought it. Ooh, it was, it was not, um, let's just say, normally in his wheelhouse. Right. Okay. He reached a little bit. And so the reason I want to throw that out there is just because either it's Buffett or it's any other legendary investor, just because he or she makes a decision doesn't necessarily mean it's a decision that you should make. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason I want to point this out. I'm not here just to, just to you know, poo-poo Buffett and his decisions because the guy is smart. He's gotten to where he's at by making great decisions. And I'm pointing these things out because it doesn't mean that every decision he make is the Midas touch and turns to gold. And it also doesn't mean just because he or another legendary investor that when he and she makes a decision, it's right for you. And so I just want to throw that out there that, you know, I think the perception is, is that these guys and gals are bulletproof and every decision they make works out And it. You and I both know, Mark, it's not that way. Yeah. And I think that it's just important to point out that these people are human. They're just like us. Yeah. You know, I think that if you sat Warren Buffett down and said, what's going to happen in the next three years in the stock market, he's going to look you in the face and say, I don't know. No, no. Just like I would. Yeah. We, I mean, right now we can only, we can only deal with the data that we have right now. Me and you can't predict the future. Could the market drop 10% over the next 10 months? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have our views and, and, and perceptions on, you know, what are the chances of that happening? But, you know, it could be up, it could be down. But I just know over history, if you look back since the market's inception, the market goes up and it goes down, but it goes up more than it goes down. And I think you have to keep that perspective in your head when you're seeing all this junk in the media. And then add that on top of the fact, just because someone else made a financial decision whether it's someone who's on the financial media or a friend or family member doesn't necessarily mean it's a smart decision for you. Right. Right. Well, good. I'm glad I got you a little heated. It's been uh, you a little, little heated there, man. Since we, uh, since we talked about that, you have Mark to thank for that. <laughs> um, okay. Anything before we call it a week here on uh, this so we're about Friday to, morning? We're about to close the quarter out, listeners. Just kind of be you know cognizant of that. And what I mean by that is, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to see uh, money coming back into the market over the last several trading days of the of the quarter. Again, just my opinion. And then um, we have Q1 earnings season beginning uh, mid to late April. So we'll be talking about that coming up as well. OK, that sounds good. We'll leave it there for the week and we will be uh, back with you next week for episode 90 on the Independent Advisors podcast. So uh, we hope everyone has a great weekend. Uh, Get out there, enjoy the warm weather, and we'll be back next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have 
questions or topics you want to discuss on the show, message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.